not as a human initiative. We do so as a spiritual mandate and a spiritual directive. I mean, the moment I walk through these doors, everything about what happens here, and if you're not a, a church goer, if you're not a believer and have not been involved in a local church, you might think that a church service means coming, sit in the pew, listen to a sermon, critiquing the sermon in your own mind and hearts and walking away. Maybe listen to a concert of music and enjoying it, and that's church. That is not church. It's one facet of it. But the moment we walk through these doors, we, we worship in song together. Everything about the church is communal in nature. It's a community of believers gathering together. We worship together. We sing together. We read scripture together. And we proclaim the word. All this is part of our spiritual practices that we thankfully follow faithfully every week. I would urge you, yes, if you're, if you're at risk, if you have a health concern, please protect yourself by wearing a mask. I would also urge all of us to, to check our own hearts and motives and to follow those in authority to the best of our ability. As a shepherd, my constant concern as a shepherd is wondering how is this going to impact the flock? How is the flock going to respond? First, we had two months without church. How's the, how, how are the, how's the flock going to respond to that? Now we're under some other restrictions, but we're, we're gathering not completely back together, and we're, we're sitting here thinking, how, how, do we, how is this going to impact the church? I would say certainly the coronavirus has, has tested every one of us, tested our patience, tested our willingness to submit, tested our humility and our meekness, tested our deference one to another, and this certainly has the potential and it can easily become an issue which can divide the brethren. May we guard against that. The church has many more battles ahead of them. When I read, and I, I do some of this reading because at school I try to stay on top of some of the legislation coming through, how it might impact the Christian school, the Virginia Values Act was voted on recently. will be enacted July 1st. The Virginia Values Act has some very good aspect to it. it it's supposed to fight discrimination, prevent that, and it's, it's good on a human level to have some of these safeguards to protect people under different circumstances. But this law also includes in discrimination issues of gender, religion, sexual orientation, where this law requires that every place that receives the public must accommodate for those discriminations or those differences. Nothing in that law gives any deference to religious institutions. So I guess what I'm saying is that to wear or not to wear a mask will soon be the least of our concerns. But let this present time be a test of our strength, our unity, and our resolve as a church body, to be faithful to him. But where do we go from here? Do we express our frustrations to anyone that would listen? My wife heard my frustrations, certainly. But it would rather encourage us that our, our thoughts might be increasingly focused on God, that our focus would be increasingly placed in him, that our joy might be increasingly found in God, and that my heart might be increasingly anchored in Christ. And so I turn to this passage in Matthew 16, and if you follow with me, I'm going to read from verses 13 through verse 19 of Matthew 16. If you'd follow the reading with me, it says, And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 13, he says to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded the disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. It's, it's such a, <clears throat> a beautiful text. Now, this text has been a battleground of sorts for theologians for hundreds of years. Protestants have pushed back on, on the Catholic interpretation of this text. They've taken the Catholics have taken this to Peter being, being the rock, and, on, and he's the, the first pope, and as a first pope, he's the one, the divine recipient of God's revelation. So Protestants have fought back with that notion of what the rock is and who Peter is. Others have fought back on this text because there's this notion of of some might call it some hyper-dispensationalism where the, the, it's no longer um, Israel that's in view, but now the church is replacing Israel because he will build his church. So there's been a constant battle, a long-time battle over these passages. And if you read through, you're reading some of these just naturally thinking, wow, I wonder what that means because there are quite a few intriguing aspects to this passage. And what does it mean for Peter to receive the, the keys to the kingdom? <laughs> What are those keys? What does it mean that whatever he binds on earth or looses on earth is already done in heaven? What does it mean when, when Peter is told, Peter here is, you know, get behind me, Satan? What does the Lord tell them? Why does he tell them? What does he end in verse, in verse 20 by saying, you know, don't tell anyone he's Messiah? So, I mean, there's quite a few things in, the, in this text that make it interesting. You could dig through the weeds and uh, find just a lot of rich truths and, uh, as you study the text. My, my focus this morning, I'm going to unfold some of these because they're necessary, but really my focus is going to be on verse 18. The climax of this text is verse 18. He, in, in these five words, he makes a proclamation. He makes a claim that he's going to support with what he's saying. He's going to make this claim. This claim is simply found in these five words. He says, I will build my church. Every time I find myself in a situation where it appears to me that the church is, is, being, is under attack or our values are being under attack or threatened, I go back to this one truth. I will build my church. It's, a, it's, an, it's an encouraging. I walk away reading this feeling encouraged. I feel emboldened. I feel strengthened. Now, when I watch the news, I walk away thinking the world has fallen apart. You know, the, the news constantly feeds into our fear, does it not? So and it even baits you into thinking things are okay. Yes, we might have a vaccine by October. Not good. You know, and, you know, numbers are down. Oh, good. Then they, they got you. But the second wave is going to be deadlier. Then you're crushed again. And they constantly, they're sitting there trying to unsettle our own hearts. But when you go to the Word, you walk away from this. There's no unsettling here. There's surety, there's confidence, there's a powerful statement that is made, there's a definitive statement that is made, and there's a promise that is proclaimed. We see, first of all, I want to back up just a little bit and provide some context to this passage. It is necessary to unfold verse 18. It's going to be helpful to understand where we're at in the text. Sometimes it's hard to do in a what we call an off one sermon, so I preach once. It's hard to spend tons of time on the context and build up to it. I can't really do that. I'm trying to give it in a way that's succinct and be helpful to understand the passage as a whole. The first thing we see is a decisive test. Christ is confronted by, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In verse 1, we're told that they're testing him. What's the source of the problem? Well, the, the issue is they're saying, we want a sign. Can you, can you provide a sign? Now, Christ is going to rebuke him in two ways. There's two aspects to his rebuke. The first aspect to it is, no, you're, first of all, you're hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? Well, they're hypocrites because you're given the impression you really want to know, but you don't want to know. You're trying to test me. You're trying to uh, find fault in me. You're trying to expose me in your view. So, no, you're a hypocrite. You, you give the appearance of wanting to know, but you don't want to know the truth. The second aspect of his rebuke is found also in these first few verses where he says, you've already been given a sign. 
the sign of Jonah, you're not going to receive another sign. You've not received the sign that's been given to you. So no, you're not going to receive another one. So there are two aspects to, to this rebuke. And I love the contrast with Peter. Because when Peter is asked, who's the Christ? And he responds accordingly, and he, he responds with the truth. The response we see in verse 17 is exactly the opposite of the Pharisees. But yet he still speaks to the revelation. Look at verse 17, he says what? He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. So he says, yes, you've well said, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but what? But my Father who is in heaven. So on one hand, you have the Pharisees and Sadducees who refused the sign that they had been given, and then you see the same, well, not the same revelation, same sign, but you see Peter being told, yes, you know this because of the revelation that's been given to you. All knowledge and understanding of God and who Christ is as the Messiah is a fruit of divine revelation. We see that we see that there's a decisive turning point in this passage. This chapter is, is a turning point in the life of the ministry of Christ. After going through this conflict with, with, this, with the Pharisees, he'll ask the disciples, who do people say that I am? And it says at the end of the chapter, in verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and be raised the third day. So at the end of this text, Christ sets his eyes on Jerusalem. And there's two, two aspects to that. He not only sets his eyes on Jerusalem, it also means he's now preparing what? He's preparing his disciples for that Passover week where he's going to be crucified, but that he will rise again. He's preparing them for that moment. I think more specifically we're going to see he's also preparing Peter for the task that he's going to have to shepherd and feed his flock and he is preparing his disciples for this truth. So I do think there's, in, in our revelation here in Matthew 16, 18, I believe there's a prophetic aspect of what he's declaring. Yes, on one hand, God has been gathering his people all the way back to Genesis. God's been gathering his people, but in a more specific sense, he's preparing to reveal to Peter what he, the particulars of the church that will come about when the Comforter comes and is revealed at Pentecost. We see a decisive question. Christ sets the stage for the claim he is about to make. He's going to make the claim in verse 18, but he first is going to set the stage in verse 13, of course, in his second question in verse 15 as well. The climax of the passage that we are going to look at depends on the answer to this question. Who do you say that I am? The answer to the question, and it's the, or the question rather, and its subsequent answer is pivotal if we're going to understand and receive what's declared in verse 18. For one reason, only, only Christ can make the claim he is about to make. That he's going to build his church, and that the, the gates of hell or death will not prevail or have victory over it. In other words, if, if Peter couldn't answer that question correctly, the claim, verse 18, didn't make any sense or it lacked the power thereof because Christ is saying that I'm going to build my church and that church will have conquer and have victory over death. And only the one who conquers death can make such a claim. So he sets the stage for this lesson that is to be taught to Peter. The church is built on this one singular truth. The church is, is this gathering of those who answer as Peter did, who in light of the truth that's been revealed to them, we gather around the central truth of who Christ is. And this one truth is what unites us. We receive the word as it is divinely inspired revelation. We profess Christ to be the Son of God, the one who suffered and died for our sins, to purchase the redemption our redemption, and rose again the third day. That is what unites us. That is what gathers the church. That's what the church is called out to be and called out to do. He makes then his decisive claim. He makes this promise to Peter. He makes this claim. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, first, this, this aspect of the 
upon this rock has been longly debated. I did some research and I picked up a book, a book that's called, entitled, and the book was written sometime in the early 70s, mid-70s. The book is A History of the Exegesis of Matthew 16, 17 through 19, from 1781 to 1965. Thinking, wow, here's a man who's going to take a 150-page book and spend roughly discussing a 150-year period of what the church, how the church interpreted this passage, particularly what whose rock is. Uh, interesting that all the research and who our previous church fathers believed, the numbers he shows is that, well, a third of them believed that Peter was the rock, another third believed that Christ was the rock, and another third believed that the truth was the rock. But it didn't really help me there because they were kind of split down every which way. Nevertheless, when I, when I come to Scripture, I tend to take a, a very literal, some would say technical, some would say maybe narrow, but my first approach to a text is to first take a very narrow understanding and interpretation of a verse. How is it defined? How is it used? And then, yes, there's a broader picture, there's a broader understanding of that truth. But I begin there, and then I want to know, okay, those who heard it, what did they hear? What, what did Peter hear when Christ tells him, I'm going to build my church? What did he hear from those words? Because what we, what we know is that Christ is preparing Peter to feed his flock. Christ is preparing Peter to take the reins of the church, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 1. D.A. Carson says this, and I think he says it justly. He says, much of our interpretation of this passage has been influenced by, by history and our desire to stay away from what the Catholic Church teaches and stay away from what other extremists might be. And it's, it's, it's not given as a clear picture of what the church, uh, what this verse should, should say. I'm not going to go and make the claim that I found the answer that's been debated all these years. But I will say this. I, I believe that, this, that Christ is telling Peter that he will be foundational to the creation and to his church and to building his church. I think Peter is going to be a living stone of which Christ is going to be the cornerstone of this edifice. He will be foundational. He follows this statement. As, as a matter of fact, he follows this statement by saying what? I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to give you power and authority to accomplish what I'm telling you to accomplish. So I think in light of, of what we know in Scripture, I think it's consistent with understanding what Christ is doing in preparing Peter to be foundational to the building of his church. God's household, we read in Ephesians 2, God's household, it says, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. Peter's going to remind us in 1 Peter 2, 4, that, he, that Christ is the chief cornerstone to which we are the living stones. And that cornerstone is what every living stone should line up and conform to. So I don't think there's any contradiction or any, there's no problematic understanding that Peter's going to be foundational, of course, Christ being that chief cornerstone and that foundation. When he walks through the term church being used, the, church, the term church was not foreign to Peter. Now, we understand the definition, common definition, which is standard, is a called-out assembly. This word was not foreign to Peter. For us, it's the first time we see the word church used in Scripture. Matthew 16 is the first time. Matthew 18 is going to be the second time. But Peter had already heard this word because this word had been used in, in Greek uh, secular Greek, it simply meant a called-out assembly. You'll see the same word translated in Acts chapter 19 three times. It's translated assembly in Acts 19 for, I think, obvious reason. It'd be confusing if it's translated um, church because he's only referring to pagans assembling. Uh, so the term for Peter, when Peter's hearing this, he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build an assembly, a called-out group of believers I don't think that though there's a greater kingdom that God is growing, I think that Christ had Pentecost in mind when he said that. After the resurrection, Christ tells Peter, he says, I want you to go and feed my flock. He's not telling Peter to feed this nebulous flock. 
He's telling him to go feed his flock that's been given to you. Then in Acts chapter 2, he says, well, here's what's been added to the church. And we see Peter being instrumental in chapter 2, in chapter 6 with the, with the Samaritans, in chapter 10. And then in chapter 10, Peter said, in chapter 11 rather, Luke quotes Peter as saying what? Peter says, back in the beginning, referring to Pentecost. So I think all this is pivotal in Christ preparing the coming of the Comforter and him establishing the visible gathering of believers. I think the fact that he, that Christ is saying he's going to build his church, as, uh, there's a prophetic aspect of what he's saying here. Even if it doesn't preclude the fact that God's been gathering his people from the beginning of time. Even Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is the second time we see the reference to church. Matthew 18, the context is what? Is, is church discipline, how to handle issues within the body. And he, there also, I believe, is a prophetic aspect, training, pe- training Peter on how to handle issues within the gathering and how to exclude somebody from the gathering if need be. So I think that this whole passage really lends towards preparing Peter for the hands-on task that will be given to him in light of the church. Now, I know that when we use the term church, there, there are very broad understandings of church. We have a very cultural understanding of church. Boy, if you were to go out of, this, uh, of the boundaries of this church and go out in society and ask them, what is the church, define the church, wow, we'd probably get so many different answers, probably quite a few different answers here. So when we think about church, we have a lot of cultural baggage around church. I think certainly in the past few months, we've added a lot of baggage to church. I mean, we, we add the word Zoom. I mean, church history now is going to include Zoom, YouTube, FaceTime, social distancing, push pay, hand sanitizing. I mean, we're going to have a lot of words added to our church vocabulary even in recent months. I would like to emphasize, though, the beauty of what Christ is announcing to Peter is, is, is much more, in my view, this, this universal church that God is bringing together as a bride of Christ. I think he's referring more specifically to the church that will come alive at Pentecost. And there's the beauty of that church. There's a beauty of the local manifestation of the church. I think in recent years, we have tended to, to, to favor a a universal church picture. You know, as long as I'm part of, of this bigger picture, as long as I'm part of the bigger family, that's what really counts. Scripture never turns that question around in that, that way. Scripture always begins with a local manifestation and describes how its implications in a greater realm. And I, I, just, made, I just put five, five descriptions here of the significance of the local gathering. Thing I put down is that the church cannot go global and that it's, it is first local. You can't have a global church that is not first local church. And as, as, I, and as I walk through this, what I want us to walk away with is not some, 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 some command that doesn't apply to us or some promise or claim that doesn't apply to us. I want to see this claim that one that we can hold on to, that we can claim. When Christ says he's going to build a church, he's talking about us. He's not just talking about this nebulous body that's invisible to everyone. The church can be more than the local visible expression, but it is never less than the local visible manifestation. As Christ builds his church, he adds to it. And as the local church grows, so does the church at large. But the reverse cannot be true. You can't grow the universal church or the kingdom of God without the local church being visibly, visibly growing. The last thing I put here is the term invisible is the invisible church is a misnomer. There is no such thing as an invisible church. There is the visible manifestation of believers who gather in his name and this claim and this promise that is being made is ours to claim. I want to take these, these five words that makes up this claim and focus on that for the next few minutes. First, he speaks to I will build my church. The I represents the authority of Christ. He makes that claim. The will speaks to the sovereignty of Christ. 
in the matter, in the claim. I will build, speaks to the promise of Christ, what he will accomplish. I will build my church, speaks to the ownership of Christ. And I will build my church, church is the prophetic fulfillment of Christ. I will build my church. There's something so, so powerful when it begins with I, when God is the I. You know, recently we've had some different people come by and check our gutters, needed work done. One thing you discover, people say a lot of things that they don't back up. I'll be there on Monday. You forgot to take care of this. I'll take care of it. I tell you what, more often than not, those were meaningless words that were never backed up. Claims were made that they were never supported. There is something powerful when Christ says, I, the full weight of deity stands behind what he is saying. It needs no other affirmation. It can be fully understood and can be readily accepted because he makes the claim. The fact that he makes a claim is sufficient. God can only be true to his word. Thankfully, he, he makes this claim knowing full, fully who I am. He makes this claim knowing all of my shortcomings. He makes this claim knowing how ugly the church might look at times. He makes this claim knowing how frail and fallible we are, and yet he makes this claim and he makes this commitment to the church. A promise is only good as the one making that promise. And we can be fully confident that I, which makes the promise, and the one making this claim is entirely capable of fulfilling this claim. He doesn't say, now it would have been a little bit different if you'd have walked in there and says, Peter, we're going to build this church. No, this is not a cooperative program. This is not an agreement of sorts where, hey, Peter, you do your part, I'll do my part. And together, we're going to build something great. No, the I is the Alpha, and the I is the Omega. He is the beginning, he is the end, and he is complete. Nothing completes him. Nothing is needed to complete that which he claims. And honestly, if I don't understand it, I have no right to question it. And when we look at the church, yes, when we look at the church, we don't just read books about the grand gathering of the church in a grand way. We look at the church locally, and what do we see? Yes, we see different temperaments. Yes, we see different, we see sometimes friction. Yes, we see, we see a number of things that can divide us, that could divide us, that sometimes make life within the body challenging, absolutely, because sin is still reality. Nevertheless, when Christ loved the church, he loved the church not because it was perfectly lovable, but in order to make it such. When you're part of this gathering, we're part of, of something greater than ourselves, and we're part of something beautiful. If this were my idea, I could walk away from it. Ah, I tried it out. You know, I tried church a few times. It's just not my thing. You know, I'm not into this organizational stuff. I kind of like this freelance stuff. I don't like this. We're too organized and structured. I kind of like to come and go. I don't want membership. I don't want to answer to anybody. No, I don't give out my phone number. I mean, who, they don't need to call me. And I, I tried it. That it just wasn't for me. The music didn't really get me going. I mean, whatever, whatever it is, if church, was my, if church was my idea, I can choose to walk away from it. But more than that, if the church was my idea, I could probably improve on it. And you could improve on it for my idea. The beauty of the church and the beauty of the claim that he's making, there's no improving on it. So when I read the word, I go to the word, I want to understand what the Bible says about the church, and I want to live out the church the way he describes it. Why? Because there's no improving on the plan that he's made. I don't care how I see the problematic in a practical way. You see that play out so easily when people discuss uh, how to function as a church. There are some guidelines that should be obvious to us. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty clear in Scripture that there should be a plurality of elders within the church. You know what the first response usually is to that? Well, that doesn't really work. You know, we need, we need, a, we need a CEO. 
When someone needs to be in charge, someone's got to make a decision, and we have to have a face. You know, we always have this response, though whatever Scripture says, we think, well, that sounds good, and that's, that, that's a good thought. But it doesn't really work that way in real life. I'll tell you what, the church is God's idea, not mine. So I need to go to, to the Word and see how He wants me to function within the body of Christ, how we exercise our gifts within the body of Christ, but there's no improving on what He claims He is going to do. And with that, there's no government. There's no authority. There's no authority and no man capable of threatening the church. I tell you what, yes, in, 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 in weeks to come, in months to come, in years to come, we're going to see constantly, we're going to hear of constantly things that are, we're going to perceive them, and, and rightfully so, we're going to perceive them as threatening the church. They're not really threatening the church. Now, they're threatening the way we do things. They threaten uh, our routines. They, they threaten perhaps things that we hold to for a long time. Can, can man really thwart God's plans for the church? Absolutely not. There, therein lies our, our, our foundation. Therein lies and should lie our focus. The will, I will build my church. The will speaks to the, to the sovereignty of Christ. He is making a claim as to what he will accomplish. Boy, it would have been pretty scary if it had been written a little bit differently. I mean, if I was going to write this, I would like, okay, I'm not going to make too big a claim right away. I'm going to say, well, how's the school doing? School's doing great. We're going to increase the enrollment next year. Well, if students sign up and pay, I mean, I mean I just, there's, so many, there's so many conditions placed on the claim I might make. He makes, there, there are no conditions to this. There are no pre-existing conditions. There are no um, expectations expressed. There are no presuppositions. It's simply this, I will. I will is enough. And I am in no way suggesting that believers are expected to not be obedient, not be faithful. What I am suggesting that God's claim is not waiting for my obedience to happen. And I can rest completely, and I can rest completely on the sovereign God who reigns over the affairs of men. And when he says, I will, I can, be, I can put a period next to it because it's done. He will. Tell you, we, we, we just need such, there's such powerful comfort in knowing that we have such a God that will accomplish what he claims he'll accomplish. And oh, do we need, maybe today more than we did three months ago, but or do, how, how much we need an understanding of God's sovereignty that is something more than what we read in textbooks, definitions, something more than some ideological feeling about what the word means and how we define it and how we explain it. We need a type of understanding of what God's sovereignty means, the type that makes a difference in my life. The type where, where I go to bed at night, I don't, I don't need medication to help me sleep. The type of understanding that when I get anxious, he brings me peace. The type of understanding that when fear wants to come and, and, and grapple my heart and, and my mind, that it relieves me, and I find refuge in him. I don't know, I, I can't really express how many times this verse, this claim, I found a refuge in this claim. You know, every one of us, when you're working, you, you, you take ownership of what you do, and you should. You put all your work into it. You put your heart into it. You want things to grow. But how many times in ministry that I poured my heart into the work, and I didn't see the fruit I wanted to see? Or you're disappointed by somebody who you thought was, like, zealous for the Lord, and they turn, they turn their back on God. They walk away. They don't, they don't just walk away. They never just walk away. They, of course, stab you in the back as they're walking away. And they... You go through this ministry thing and you're thinking, Lord, I see the fragility of man. Are you going to build your church on this? I was really sharing my heart with, with the early, in the early services in regards to this, but I, I just was thinking back at the time where I left the church in France after 10 years. After 10 years of loving the church, feeding the church, I can't tell you how I many Man, how many, time, how many hours spent loving people, counseling people, crying with them, rejoicing with them, 
seeing them at the birth of their child, being by their side with the death of the mother, and we walked away from that. I tell you right now, I didn't walk away from there thinking, wow, man, I'm just sure we did a great job. These men are solid. These men are strong. They've got their own building. They're, look, the offerings are solid. That must be good, right? There's money in the bank. I've got men who can teach. There's families, so there's young kids. There's a future. I walked away in peace. I tell you what, that had nothing to do with it. I walked away with only one thing in my mind. I will build my church. That's where I found comfort. That's where I found refuge, knowing that, that in spite of all the uncertainties, and I tell you, the first year, first two years, I kept on getting calls. Man, what do we do about this? Man, just pray for us. We're struggling here. And it, my heart was weighed every time. But I had to go back to the Word every time, confident that the Lord was going to fulfill His purposes in that church because He claimed it, because He promised it, not because I had somehow been successful in something that I had done. God's sovereignty sometimes is confusing to people. You can't truly grasp it. But I do want to live my life according to it. Let us be found faithful. Let us trust him. Let us find a refuge in him. Some would ask a question, and I don't think that question is really a legitimate question or a helpful question. Some people, you know, well, if God is sovereign over everything, does that mean I'm just a puppet? You know what comes to mind when, when I, I think of a puppet dangling by the strings? I think, you know, I'd much rather be a puppet in a master's hand than a fool dangling on my own. So I got no problem with God ruling in whatever capacity he seems fit. And the promise he makes is that he will fulfill this and he will be sovereign over it. I will build my church. God is going to grow the church. The church will thrive. The church will, will multiply. COVID will not slow it down. One of the blessings of missions is seeing how places that were once empty and dry, you see people rise up. I remember going to teaching in China and, and going to one of those areas where you're supposed to go, you know, un, you're supposed to hide the fact that the foreigner is going in there and you go into the church. And you go there and slowly what happens is that you first get there, you see one or two people. Then you know there's two, three added, two, three added, two, three added. Then you know you have a gathering of 50, you have a gathering of 60. Coming out of nowhere, coming out of a society you might think is, is, is a godless society, but far from it, God is growing his church and God is building his church. It's always beautiful to see that, but Christ promises to grow the church, not a church. God is not sentimentally attached to, to this building or to this history. He's attached to his word. He's attached to truth. And he'll bless it when it's proclaimed. He will bless it when it is taught. And it will grow and it will multiply. Let us be confident of this. We're, we're the living stones to which he is, yes, the cornerstone. And we line up to this cornerstone. And we grow the church that he has promised to build. We're not called to build the church. He promised already to build the church. We're called to be found faithful in proclaiming, faithful in serving, faithful in giving, being part of, of this community of believers called out. I will build my church. There's, there's something special about that term, my, because he takes possession of it. We see the ownership of Christ. It's not my church, it's his church. We don't gather for ourselves, we gather for him. The, the beauty of it is that he claims ownership and he desires ownership. It's always amusing when you see a, a child misbehaving and you want to find out who's that child belong to. And the parent sheepishly, yeah, that one's mine. Yeah, yeah, that one's mine. I know in Christ he's a church. He doesn't sheepishly say that. He says, that's my church. And he sees the beauty of his son. And he sees the church. He claims it as his own. He calls them my people, my possession, the people of God. Don't, don't, don't ask me to explain it. Don't ask me why he would want to call us his people, but he does. And the claim he is making is for us. We are his possession. Two passages that I, I appreciate as, as I thought about this. One is Acts chapter 9 when Paul is on the road to Damascus. 
and, and, and Christ stops him in his track. Of course, we know that Paul has been persecuting the church. What does Christ say? Why are you, why do you persecute my church? That's what he says. What does he say? Why do you persecute me? Wow. That's ownership. It's my people. You're messing with my people. That, that my brings that ownership. Another passage that came to mind I thought was fitting because he speaks of David as he was surrounded by his enemies. He cries out to God. And in Psalm 17, verse 8, he, he, he says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. David, David is asking the Lord to keep him as the apple of your eye. The Hebrew word refers to this small reflection the small reflection of yourself that you see in the eye of the other. To describe God gazing upon him. You know, the unbeliever oftentimes defaults with this notion that, well, if God really cares, God's obviously not paying attention. He must be busy elsewhere, because if he cared, he wouldn't let this happen. Let us not believe that ourselves about the church, as if God somehow is not gazing upon his church. God somehow is not gazing upon us, determined to fulfill what he's claimed he's going to do. He's not forgotten us. We're his people. We're his beloved. And that claim he made to Peter is our claim to hold on to. It's our claim to make. It's our promise. And he ends with, with this. And this, I, I think that last, that last aspect is just beautiful to me because he says what? He says, I will build... My church. That church is the prophetic fulfillment of Christ. We are the prophetic fulfillment of that claim. It is, it, it is a, the very existence of this church is a beautiful fulfillment of, of God's promise to his people. I can't help but think that Christ had you and me in mind when he made that claim to Peter of building his church. I was part of what he was going to accomplish and fulfill. We look at that text sometimes, the way he's talking to Peter, so far a long time ago. You know, we're, we're the fulfillment of that. We're the promise coming to life. And he continues to do so. The Lord added to his church then, he'll continue to add to it today, and he will continue adding to it until he raptures his church. And now we're given a mandate. We're given a mandate to go into all the world, to proclaim, to baptize, to plant water, and watch God grow his church. And we're graced with the privilege of carrying that truth and being part of that promise as well. God did not fail at his promise at all. And though we often see the shortcomings of the church, God sees the beauty of his son. So as Christ was battered, as he was bruised, as he was persecuted, so will his church be. But church history... Church history will be one of victory and not defeat. The church has been perfectly equipped to fulfill the task at hand. The church has been given the tools. The church has been given the power. And the church has been given the mandate to be victorious. I find great comfort and great strength in these words and in these truths. How much more was it comforting to the disciples? They could not see this gathering as we see it. They were about to face great trials. They were about to face great tribulations, great moments of doubts, great moments of fears. And I wonder how many times in Peter's mind that truth resonated. Whew, man, I said, I just denied Christ three times. I, I, just, I, I just, I hate myself and I'll build my church. In the midst of persecution, we give the impression that the, 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 whether it be the Jewish religious opposition, whether it be the Roman, that the, the Romans would come and and stomp out the church, how many times that claim come to resonate in their minds? 
churches in this country have benefited from the favor of the authorities for generations. I would not take that for granted. I would go out and vote as often as you can, as often as you're given that right, and vote people that can best mirror your biblical values. But don't be distraught. Don't be discouraged. Don't be surprised. When those in authority, who don't see the church as essential, don't recognize you and certainly don't support you. We'll be seen as uncaring for our lack of inclusiveness. We'll be seen as unloving because we don't accept all forms of vice. We'll be seen as intolerant because we don't accept all forms of truths. We'll be seen as narrow-minded for preaching that Christ is the way, he is the truth, and the light. But this confidence the apostles needed throughout the generations, the church has needed this, and so do we today. I trust you find great comfort and strength in that claim as well this morning. Let's close our time in the word with a word of prayer, if you will. Father, I thank you that the church gathered here today is a witness to the fulfillment of this claim you made to Peter. We're part of this heritage. We're part of this promise. Oh, Lord, help us to Yes, not take it for granted. Help us to see the beauty of the church and be confident that we serve a certain God, a sovereign God, that will continue to fulfill that claim of building this church. Lord, may we be found faithful. May we be found obedient. May we be found serving you and serving your church for your glory and yours alone. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, just before you uh, leave this morning, we have a um, parent baby dedication. And so we're looking forward to that. And we're going to ask the... Uh, Michael Duncan family to come uh, forward. We were, while they are coming, and you can bring the whole family, anybody that wants to come, we would love to have all of them. We were also going to be doing a um, dedication this morning of the Caleb uh, Mass family, Caleb and Emily, but um, Caleb is in the middle of uh, phone calls right now. You can pray for him as... Uh, it appears as though he might get called up for, it looks like the governor may call up the uh, uh, the guard. And so as we're praying for those that are in authority, they're going to have to reschedule and do that at a different time. But we have Michael and Ellie and little um, April uh, here this morning. And uh, Ellie, your parents, I've got their names here, um, David and Carrie, and then, of course, Mike and Linda. And uh, thrilled to have you here as we look at uh, dedicating this little one. Um, I always like to just give an opportunity. Is there anything you'd like to say, Michael? Yeah. How about any of the grandparents? Anybody want to say anything? Just that when you need, the Lord provides. Amen. I think April wants to say something. Beautiful. I want to read just a, a couple of passages as we think about this. This is more than um, a baby dedication. It's a parent dedication. There's no special uh, grace or saving act with this, but this family is coming forward and asking for your prayers as they dedicate to rear this little one in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and we're praying together that uh, uh, the gospel would be made real as it's proclaimed uh, to little April and she would 
by faith receive him as Savior. And so um, that's what we're doing as we gather here and commit these parents and grandparents to this task. Psalm 27, reading part of it, says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. You have to remember that at 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes. Uh, they're a gift from uh, the Lord, a treasure. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. I like to read the passage in uh, Mark speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, his view of children in case we ever wondered. Um, Speaking about what was occurring at that time they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw that, he was indignant. He was indignant and said, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. A lot in that one statement, for sure. Truly I say to you, Whosoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them, like a little April. He took them, a small child. And um, he put them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying hands on them. Jesus loves the little children. And uh, so do we here at Timberlake. Thankful for this family. Michael, we have had the privilege to uh, rear you from, um, I guess we would say, the nursery, right? Uh, All the way through. And uh, Ellie, the Lord surely gifted Michael and his family, um, bringing you here uh, to us as well. And now this little April. So we look forward forward to what God's going to do in her. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are so very grateful for um, this family who is committed to Christ, um, committed to see this little one grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and how we pray Father that you would grant them wisdom as parents and as grandparents to um, be able to proclaim the truth to this little one live the truth with integrity before this little one and how we pray that you would draw her to yourself that she would be an arrow Lord uh, a flaming light that is sent out into the darkness for the glory of Christ should you tarry your coming so we pray to that end for this sweet little one and for their family, your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, um, that's it. We, we are through. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for that stirring message. And uh, Lord willing, you'll do your social distancing outside. And uh, we'll see you next week. God bless you.